Their aircraft carriers don't have catapults. Their submarines are mostly diesel. Many of their aircraft are made of Soviet-era designs. Their economic growth has ground to a halt and their birth rate has crashed. So why does military doctrine rate China as a near-peer military offensive force? My next guest argues for a different way to think about China and consequently about U.S. military and foreign policy. Dan Grazier is Senior Military Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. He joins me now in studio. Dan, good to have you back in. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me again. And you've written kind of an eye-opening essay about the reality of what we constantly hear about China's military spending and its buildup. What are some of the shibboleths here that we need to maybe look at a little more closely? I think the main thing is just questioning the general premise of all major discussions going on in Washington about national security. And the starting point for most of these discussions is that China presents an immediate existential military threat to not just the United States, but basically the entire world. And we need to spend vast fortunes to confront that threat. And so I just wanted to I don't know, kind of poke holes and just raise some questions that don't seem to be asked. And one of the main things is, what is China actually doing? And when you take a look at it for even five minutes, you realize that China's building a military that is defensive-minded, that is oriented almost entirely to keeping foreign invaders out of what they consider their territory. It's not to project military power forward. Like the Chinese are not building a military to invade the West Coast of the United States. And so when you understand that, then you start to kind of question a lot of the decisions that are being made about our own military force and future. Well, let me ask you two devil's advocate questions in one. One is that they seem to be trying to deny U.S. access to waters that were at least at some point, considered international that are close to China. So that's one issue. The other issue not mentioned in your article is the vast nuclear arsenal that they have. Yes, the Chinese are building a military force that is capable of defending their territorial waters. Like so far, there hasn't been a lot of efforts to actually exclude people from their territorial waters. And in fact, that would be pretty disastrous for the Chinese economy because their entire economy is based on imports and exports. And so if they were to threaten to shut down waters, then that global trade would be disrupted and the Chinese economy would take an almost immediate hit. So that's one thing. Yes, they have the ability to do that, but that's not what they're actually doing as far as keeping people out of their territory. And as far as their nuclear buildup, you could take a look at that and say that that's actually a stabilizing effort on their part because no one abhors the potential of a nuclear war more than me, but it does have a stabilizing effect because nuclear powers don't fight each other for good reason, because if that war escalates, which it almost certainly would, then we would all be dead. And so their nuclear buildup you know, can be viewed as kind of a good thing in that sense. But we also have to take a look at you know, the Chinese are a strategic competitor to the United States. And so we need to really take a look at what are the reasons behind some of their moves, because some of them might not be what it seems. Yes, they're undertaking a big nuclear modernization, but that also prompts us to do the same thing. 
But when we spend money on defense, it is at a much higher level than what the Chinese do. So for every dollar that the Chinese spend on nuclear modernization, we're spending two, three, maybe even four dollars. So it's a lot more expensive for us. So that could be part of the mindset behind the Chinese moves. Like they might be trying to prompt us to do that, you know, for us to to continue investing vast amounts of money on the military to maybe destabilize the United States. Right. Is one cause of their lower cost for seemingly the bang for the buck that they get is the fact that maybe their contractors are similar to iPhone makers and that they don't get the kinds of wages that our big contracting firms get it's really kind of difficult to make a you know direct one for one comparison between the chinese economy and the american economy but we also have different ways of doing business as far as defense goes. You know, the military industrial congressional complex in the United States has some definite practices that just increase costs naturally. You know, the idea of, of spreading contracts around the country just to bolster political support for programs, that adds costs into each product. And I doubt very much that there's the same kind of motivation behind the Chinese defense industry. We're speaking with Dan Grazier, senior military fellow with the Project on Government Oversight. And to get back to the essay that you wrote that prompted this, you make some really interesting observations behind the numbers we hear about Chinese size of their fleet on the waters, the size of their aircraft fleet and so forth, their submarine fleet. When you look at them closely, they don't quite measure up to the uh, kind of Reminds me of the story of the ancient Israelites looking at the land they were about to occupy and coming back and reporting, everybody there is a giant, we're just a grasshopper. Right. That was a very interesting part of my research into this uh, when I was actually kind of evaluating the Chinese fleet. Uh, because, again, the normal talking point or the beginning point of the discussion in Washington is that the Chinese have a fleet that's bigger than the United States. In raw terms, that's very true. You know, the last time I looked at the numbers, the Chinese had about 355 battle force ships. And I just looked this morning, the United States has 242 battle force ships in active commission. So there's a big discrepancy, right? You know, right there. And that grabs a lot of headlines. But when you really take a look at the fleet composition, then you start to see the big differences. So even though the Chinese have more ships, the United States fleet has more tonnage, almost double the tonnage of the Chinese fleet. And that is a big impact on what the fleets can do. The United States has bigger ships because our fleet is oriented towards projecting military power far away from our shores. Right. The Chinese, right. they have a larger fleet in total numbers, but their ships are smaller, which means that they are not capable of traveling as far. You know, they can't carry as many missiles. They, they don't have the range, which is fine because the Chinese fleet, it's a fortress fleet. You know, it was something that Alfred Thayer Mahan derided 100 years ago, but the Chinese have kind of upgraded the concept because with their area denial uh, or anti-access area denial strategy with all the long-range missiles that are based on the shore, they create this defensive bubble over the fleet. And so that's all meant to operate as part of a system to keep outsiders out, you know, away from Chinese shores. The latter-day version of the Great Wall, you might say. Right. It's a modern version, high-tech version of the of the Great Wall, and it just happens to be at sea, which is, in and of itself, that's a pretty impressive accomplishment. Sure. So given what you have 
postulated about their motivation and about their actual power, how should that devolve to how we look at what investments our military needs to make in the United States? Well, since we've questioned some of the basic assumptions, I think that leads us to like the next logical step is to kind of reevaluate our investments in military forces. You know, the idea of us projecting military power right up to the Chinese shores doesn't make a lot of sense anymore because that is such a formidable challenge. And we would take such great losses to do that. But even if we were able to get up to the shore, then what? We're not going to invade China with the United States Army and the United States Marines. You know, Our military force is relatively tiny. The Chinese population is still really big. And so that would and just be a, a big country. Right. And it's a big country. That would be a fool's errand. So none of that actually like makes any sense. So, okay, so then what? If our big concern is to defend against Chinese aggression, then you don't need to build a force to attack directly into that bubble. You just need to build a force that can deter that Chinese force from leaving its bubble. And that's a much easier prospect than trying to build a fleet to attack directly to the mainland. So you can get away with a lot of submarines. And because this isn't, you know, the 1940s anymore, we have a lot of allies in the region. So, you know, a better course of action would be to, you know, create a defense in depth across the Pacific using all of our allies in Japan, in Australia, the Oceanic countries. And we can create this defense in depth that should the Chinese ever get the notion to attack outside of that bubble, that they would then have to fight through, you know, this defense in depth. So we're playing Dungeons and Dragons and they're playing chess or vice versa. Right, exactly. Dan Grazier, a senior military fellow with the Project on Government Oversight. Always great to have you in. Hey, Tom, it's always a pleasure to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his essay on China at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in d- direct care. And and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, p- profound disabilities are are really, um, you know, we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn 
uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism and, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics it, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and, uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks, 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.